All right, hope you've had a fun day. Always action-packed at family camp. This is the, uh, the much-coveted slot to be the last speaker on Friday night when everybody's just whipped. We're going to have a nice time together. I think it'd be very appropriate to give our heartfelt thanks to Pastor Tracy and Marsha for all that they've done for us. Yeah, they've served us tirelessly. It's been a phenomenal week. God has blessed with rich times of fellowship, encouraging times, times in the word, worshiping together. Praise God for his marvelous grace in our lives. These times are always landmark, endearing times that we look back on and gain so much strength and encouragement from. And Lord willing, we have one more time in the word together. Lord willing, it will be a profitable time. I I acknowledge that we have many in this room, uh, old and young, And hopefully there'll be something from the word for everybody. So let's go to God in prayer, asking for his grace. Father, we come to you through our mediator, the one mediator between God and man, the Lord Jesus Christ. And we beg for your help. We pray that you might speak to us through your word, that your word would be opened and its meaning exposed and the thoughts of our hearts and minds Uh, would be made known and plain to us, and we would see the places in our lives which are incongruous and don't match up to the truth of your word, and that you would shape and change and form us into Christ. Father, I beg for your help, that you would help me in my words to be clear, that you would help me to connect with old and young, uh, with mature and small, uh, that you would speak to each one of us tonight and advance your gracious purposes. And it's in Christ's name that we come to you. Amen. So far, we've been challenged regarding our unity and love in the first session with Pastor Tracy and then warned from Pastor Jacob last night concerning the things that might drive us apart. Watch out that you might not bite and devour and consume one another. Now it's time for us to consider our partnership in the gospel and advancing the gospel together. When you trusted Christ, you became a part of the world's greatest enterprise, whether you recognize it or not. The gospel called us into existence as a church. The gospel birthed this living, breathing body of Christ. This church exists by the gospel and for the gospel. And maybe that's not a framework in which we typically think, but We were called into being by the word of the living God, miraculously imparted life when we were dead in trespasses and sins, called into being so that we could participate with God in the world's greatest venture and enterprise, the mission of Lord Jesus Christ, the resurrected son of God, as he calls out a people for his name from among all the nations. Gospel advance is not extracurricular, It's not ancillary, not something that we just tack on to our lives. It's core and central. It should be the bread and butter of our Christian lives to seek to proclaim, announce, and share with a lost and dying world what God has done for us through his son. So what's that going to look like in each of our lives personally? How do we advance the gospel together? I think we're all on the same page here, right? I think we'd all admit evangelism is something I want to improve in. I really wish I were better at it, more devoted to it. So let's just make the commitment right now to put the past behind us. Let me be the first to confess my self-centeredness, my shortcomings, and my failures in evangelism. Leave those behind, and let's strive together to advance the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ and make gains in this moment right now and leave this room changed. For the sake of illustration and application, I want to start with a brief anecdote from my own life. And I hope that as I share, you can begin to think through your own circumstances and relationships, make your own connections and associations to life. While I was going through seminary before working at the church, I worked at the Lincoln Park Starbucks. Very exciting three and a half years of my life. I had a number of coworkers that I was burdened for and I wanted to share the gospel with. I'm sure like yourself, there was Adam and Nick and Sarah and Dana and Jen, manager Sarah and others. So often I felt stumped and stymied in my attempts at gospel conversation. 
Um, I remember one frustration particularly. We had a customer at the time named Renee who essentially treated the Starbucks cafe like her own personal living room. Maybe you've seen somebody like that in the local coffee shop. She was a middle-aged woman working through a nursing program at community college. She probably spent more time with us than at home. It's the Starbucks philosophy to be the third place in your life. So your first place is your home. Your second place is where you work. And Starbucks wants to be your third place, where you go when you're not at home or at work. I think we were all three for Renee. At times, she wore slippers in the cafe, you know, etc., abiding by the typical Kroger dress code. Her personality type was the quintessential flatterer and schmoozer, and she was a professional. She had all of the baristas eating out of her hand to the point where she rarely paid for drinks. That made for a very awkward moment waiting on somebody, just kind of like waiting for a payment, subtly trying to indicate that you're not going to give out the beverage for free. She gave everyone a card on their birthday. She passed out bags of candy on Valentine's Day and Easter. And occasionally she brought entrees like sushi or other finger foods to share. You can see why she was everyone's favorite. Meet Renee. Well, I remember the internal struggle. How am I going to get my coworkers to listen to me? How am I going to be able to convince them that I care about their eternal soul, that I have a genuine love and care that would give anything for them to come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm a a self-centered person, so I'm exaggerating a little bit here, but you get the point. How could I show them and convince them genuine love and care? How can I ever compete with Renee? Everyone thinks she's the absolute best. You know, I realize that I actually can't out-nice her. And trust me, it's not every day that I'm faced with that challenge. I definitely couldn't one-up her. You know, I'd go broke if I tried to do that. And I can't stoop to the level of flattery and bribery to gain a hearing. How can I get people to see genuine care, true love as an open door for the gospel? These are the kinds of questions that our passage is going to answer for us tonight And I hope that we can draw many personal applications to your own life. So the subject of our focus will be striving together in God-honoring evangelism. That's what we're going to drill down on tonight from 1 Thessalonians. Striving together in God-honoring evangelism. How do we move the needle forward, carry the gospel ball forward together as a body of Christ? Let me give a little bit of the context before I orient you to the specific passage in focus tonight. Paul church planted in Thessalonica after being evicted from the city of Philippi. Perhaps you remember the church planting account of his, um, what transpired in Philippi. That's where he met Lydia, the seller of purple. He gathered with the women at the river, which was a place where God-fearers came to pray, planted a church, And then he was wrongfully accused, publicly beaten, imprisoned with Silas. That's where they sang hymns, and eventually um, the angels released them from prison. The very prison was shaken by a miraculous earthquake. The the jailer said, what must I do to be saved? And then later that morning, on the next day, the magistrates came to dismiss Paul privately privately. And Paul made them come themselves to release him from prison, accusing them of malpractice, that they had beaten a Roman citizen. And then he left Philippi for his next area of focus, which became Thessalonica, where he planted the next church. And then in Thessalonica, he reasoned with them in the synagogue for the span of three Sabbath days. Uh, So we could just give an average. We don't know the exact time frame, but it seems like roughly three weeks he ministers proclaims Jesus Christ crucified, the Messiah risen from the dead, the son of God in power, the only mediator between God and men, the judge of the living and the dead, and a new body, a fledgling body of believers is brought into existence, burst into the world by the raw power of the word of God through the gospel. And these people in Thessalonica, and then I guess I should close the loop and finish the story, then Jews from Philippi, hearing he had moved on to minister, and in their view, stir up trouble in Thessalonica, travel to Thessalonica and make trouble for him so that he's ejected from that city and he slips off quietly at night 
to Berea. So Paul was sort of making havoc wherever he went, or I guess I should say trouble was following him. But shockingly, this embryonic church shone like sterling. So in this letter to the Thessalonians, we hear of the quality of their faith. Listen to a few of these statements from chapter one. For we know, brothers, loved by God, that he's chosen you because our gospel came to you not only in word, but also in power and in the Holy Spirit and with full conviction. He ministered to these people allegedly for some three weeks or apparently for some three weeks. And he says this, you became imitators of us and of the Lord for you received the word in much affliction. We heard about that, the way he was treated in Philippi and then in Thessalonica with the joy of the Holy Spirit so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and Achaia in that region of Greece in which the city of Thessalonica was located. These fledgling believers became a model church, an example. He talks about how they turned from paganism from their dead idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven, Jesus, who rescues us from coming wrath. He talked about how they were demonstrably converted in power. So the gospel hit the ground running and was changing people's lives, bringing into existence a new body of Christ. But this generated a couple of concerns for Paul, which are addressed in our letter of 1 Thessalonians. So in the first place, his abrupt and forced departure caused him to suffer angst and deep-seated concern for the spiritual health of the Thessalonian believers. Are they going to stand up under persecution? Will they wilt under pressure like the soil, um, the rocky soil in which the plant sprouts up, but after a time it's scorched by the sun? Are they going to be able to bear up under the kind of persecution, intense persecution that Paul suffered. This is the same thing they were facing. He felt like he left an orphaned and abandoned church. And so he had to write to them to strengthen them. And then there's another underlying concern in our letter. Paul was continually taking flack in his ministry, people trying to attack his reputation, people trying to undermine his credibility, people trying to destroy his churches, and win their allegiance for themselves. He's continually dealing with false teachers and false apostles. This especially features in his correspondence with the Corinthians. So taking flack and slander and gossip was an occupational hazard for Paul, and he addresses some of this in his letter to the Thessalonians. These are the things that are backing his concern that moves him to write to them. So there are a couple of things that shape our passage that we need to keep in mind. Here's what Paul wants to accomplish in the first paragraph of 1 Thessalonians 2, chapter 2, verses 1 through 12. We're going to work through this passage gradually. So one thing he is intensely interested in is providing them a safeguard against false accusations of malpractice. He is defending his ministry in this passage. He is um, expositing the way, he's highlighting the way that he always acted above board. He He never besmirched his integrity. He did not do things in an underhanded way. He had the best interest of the people that he served in mind and he didn't minister with a self centered heart. So he's reminding them of his lifestyle, the way he served, the way he taught them the word of God, and how they. Um, should look to him as an example of faithful gospel ministry. So in the first place, the paragraph before us is a defense. It's a defense of Paul against the people who want to attack and slander and damage his reputation. And in the second place, it's a pattern for faithful gospel ministry. What does faithful gospel ministry look like? What does it look like to faithfully, diligently announce the good news of the Lord Jesus Christ to a lost and dying world. And that's where this passage becomes very important for our purposes, because we need a pattern. We need a solid reminder from God's word. We need something to follow. And that's what it offers for us, a model for how we should strive to advance the gospel together. So let's start in 1 Thessalonians 2. We'll begin with verses 1 through 2. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. 
But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi, as you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much affliction. As we work through this passage bit by bit, we want to try to accomplish three things. We have three goals for the night before we're cut loose to family fun times. The first goal is I want to try to show you from the text that this is a pattern of God-honoring evangelism. That's what Paul is laying out for us to follow. I want to show you this is a pattern for us to follow detailing God-honoring evangelism. He also, in the course of his agenda, Give us, gives us the knots for evangelism. He warns us about the man-centered, self-centered approach. So there are seven knots that we're going to cover. Don't worry, we're not going to drill down on every one of them. Be a quick flyover on some of those. But there are seven knots. This is what you do not do. And then there are six buts. Not this, but this. That's what he details in that paragraph. So this is in keeping with the barbecue theme. We just had pork butt. And now we're going to hear about these not buts from this passage of scripture. So those are the three things that we're going to try to accomplish. I tried to make the buts seven. I tried to squeeze six into seven because wouldn't that be great if it was parallel and it actually matched? Seven is the number of perfection and goal in scripture. It's also the most magical number according to the Harry Potter saga. But I, I didn't ring it out for all it's worth. I left it at six. So that's where we're going for the evening. First of all, you have to see that what he's striving to give us here is a pattern for God-honoring evangelism. I want you to glance at the paragraph. I'm going to point out a couple of words and phrases that bring his concern to the surface. Notice this. The number of times that Paul calls the reader's attention to something that they already know, giving them a reminder, a pattern an anchor, something that they can hold fast to and not be moved from. The number of times he does that in this short span of text is arresting and bizarre. Look at these references. 2.1 begins in this way. For these things you know, brothers. You know this. Remember, he ministered with these people for three weeks. Keep that in mind. Verse 2, just as you know. Glance down at verse 5. Just as you know, again, And there he also says, for God himself is witness. Look at verse nine. For you remember, brothers. Look at verse 10. You are our witnesses and God also. One more time in verse 11. Just as you know. Sometimes in our lives, we need reminders. Not gonna force you to show your hand, you know, just raise your hand in your own heart and mind. But do you ever need reminders of important and enduring things, things that you cannot forget and you cannot neglect? Reminders are so helpful. And he is so insistent on them being rooted and established in their faith because he knows what's coming. He knows that there are wolves in sheep's clothing who are going to tack, that there are Jews who denied Jesus as Lord and Messiah are trying to attack him and slander his reputation and ruin his ministry. So he's saying, you have to remember and hold fast to this pattern, this pattern of faithful, God-honoring evangelism and gospel ministry. You know what it looks like because I was there ministering alongside of you, sharing my very life with you. You tasted it firsthand and you have to remain in it and hold fast That's his heartbeat in this passage, and that's the message that we need to receive. Remember. I don't know if you're familiar, kids, maybe you remember this and you're more familiar with this, but the um, story of the silver chair by C.S. Lewis, if you remember that book, there are the main characters, Pole and Jill, and Aslan the lion, who in many of Lewis's stories, in some way gives us a glimpse of his Christology, his understanding of Christ. Aslan the lion tells Jill that there are four signs that she cannot forget. She must remember. She's supposed to recite them when she goes to sleep at night, when she wakes up in the morning, when she's walking by the way, when she sits down for a meal, remember the four signs. And as the story unfolds, it's actually a saga of how she forgets every sign or she remembers it at the wrong time. But Aslan is gracious, another precursor and pointer there to Lewis's thoughts about the Lord. Remember, that's what Paul wants us to do tonight. He calls our attention most earnestly to this all-important thing. 
And then Paul is concerned. So that is the, the pattern that he's pointing out, which we must stand fast in. And then his concern is evangelism or that they would understand faithful gospel ministry. This is how Paul understood his life, his DNA, his vocation, that he has been entrusted with the mysteries of the living God, that God in Christ is reconciling the wicked and hostile world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them. The staggering news, the the groundbreaking, life-changing news that God will acquit sinners of all of their sin, Jew and Gentile, if they will but repent and believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Christ is crucified, risen, coming again. He's the judge of the living and the dead. He is the one seated at the right hand of God Almighty, pouring out his spirit on anyone who calls on his name. Paul understood his life's work as stewarding this message. It's not a message he wrote, scripted, or created himself. It's a message that was entrusted to him directly by the risen Christ. He didn't commission himself as a minister of this message. He was put directly in the service of Christ. And he understood his responsibility or his stewardship to disseminate that message at all cost. He says here in this verse that he was approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel. And he says, he references throughout the paragraph, but if you look at verses two and three and then verse eight and verse nine, he was responsible to speak the gospel of God. That's in verse two and in verse three. In verse eight, he says he was ready to share with them not only the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, but his own life as well. He was speaking the gospel of God. He was sharing the gospel of God. And then in verse nine, as a passing comment, a circumstantial comment, he says, while we preach to you the gospel of God. So this passage is all about evangelism and it requires speaking. That's something we need to remember continually. No one can deduce the gospel just by watching your life. Wouldn't that be so nice? Wouldn't that be so nice if people could see my well-manicured lawn and my nice family, at least the times when we're outside, sometimes, that was, that was an underhanded joke there. Wouldn't it be nice if people could just deduce the gospel from the way that I live? Well, can't you tell that I belong to God and that my life is different? You know, maybe to some degree that's true, but no one's nonverbal testimony will save anyone. The gospel is a message for speaking, for sharing, for proclaiming. And that was Paul's living vocation. That was his calling. And we have to remember that pattern and follow him in his example. We have to speak. We have to open our mouths and tell a lost and dying world who Jesus is, why he came, and what it means to follow him. And Paul, that was his life's work. He devoted himself to it completely. We have to realize that everyone who believes the gospel receives the gospel as a steward. Remember, if you know Christ, you're in on this enterprise. There are no, you know, sidelines spot. Christianity is not a spectator sport. If you've trusted in Christ, if you've been called into spiritual life by the gospel, then you are responsible for the gospel. You're involved in the frontline work yourself to be an ambassador for Christ, to plead with the world, to be reconciled to God. This is the most priceless treasure and endowment. It is infinitely valuable. All right, let's get around to the knots. What does faithful gospel ministry look like? Well, sometimes the best way to see something clearly is to actually see it by way of contrast, right? What is it not? If I were to just spring the question on you, what is a square? You might think, well, it's not a circle. That's a good starting point, right? That's kind of helpful. It gives you a little bit of information. The more mathematically minded people, I'm looking at Mr. Karaman over there, so thinking about right angles and things like that. You probably have a technical definition for a square. Sometimes bringing something in sharp and clear focus involves thinking about the antithesis or the opposite. So let's begin there. Look at verses three through six. Chapter two, three through six. For our appeal does not spring from error impurity, or any attempt to deceive. But just as we've been approved by God to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak, 
not to please man, but to please God who tests our hearts. For we never came with words of flattery, as you know, nor with a pretext for greed. God is witness. Nor did we seek glory from people, whether from you or from others, but we could have made demands as apostles of Christ. So again, he gives us seven knots. Uh, this is the opposite of faithful God-honoring evangelism. This is what it doesn't look like. So let's take it from the top. The first knot is error. This word describes straying from the path of truth or conveying a misrepresentation of the truth. Obviously, the gospel is true. It is the very antithesis of falsehood and error. Jesus is the way, the truth, the life, over against all other truth claims, ideas, philosophies, and worldviews. Our message is bluntly, flat out true. It accords with reality. It matches the way things really are. Jesus, though you can't see him now, is seated at the right hand of God Almighty, judge of the living and the dead. He came, died, rose, and is coming again. That's true, regardless of what anybody says. And our appeal doesn't spring from error. It springs from truth. The next not is impurity. This word speaks of moral corruption, probably with reference to one's motives. Corrupt motives promote selfish desires and self-interest, perhaps to abuse or exploit someone else. But our appeal doesn't spring from impure motives. Paul's appeal for people to be reconciled to God through Christ didn't spring from self-centered, self-focused desire or impurity. It sprang from a heart that was committed to the Lord and loving one's neighbor as oneself. This completes the first triad, the third knot, it's deception. This word points to underhanded dealing, trickery, or conniving. That's taking advantage of people through crafty and deceitful schemes. The appeal to be reconciled to God through Christ doesn't spring from a bait and switch kind of motive, any kind of underhanded deception. So let's pause and make some application after these first three knots. When you engage in faithful, steady evangelism, the world will accuse you of all of these vices, error, impurity, conniving, and deception. The most popular ideas, the ideas of pluralism and tolerance have no place for the real Jesus. So if you preach Jesus as he is, the one way to God, then you will come under fire. You'll take hits to one degree or another. And this truth must be firmly fixed in your heart and mind. And you cannot quail or waver under pressure. No matter what the world thinks about the exclusive claim of the gospel that Jesus is Lord over all. In our world today, that's essentially the most disagreeable thing you could ever say. Right? People flat out deny that. To them, that sounds like incorruption at its highest. That sounds like moral perversion to say, Jesus is, the alone, is alone the way, the truth, and the life. And no one comes to God except through him. People say, there's no way that's true. That's error, that's impure, and that's deception. But as we're going to see later on in the passage, it doesn't ultimately matter what people think, what their opinion is. Um, it doesn't matter what they deduce. It doesn't matter in a sense, and I'm going to qualify this a little bit later, how our gospel is perceived by people darkened in their understanding. People enslaved by the devil, captive to do his will, won't see the infinite value of Christ. But we've got to tell them anyway, praying that God will light the fuse of that gunpowder, the word of the living God. So we can't cave under pressure. Our gospel is true, and we just have to unleash its power. We just speak it. Let's move on to the next couple of knots. Here's the next one, not pleasing men. I imagine we all struggle with this in one degree or another. I'll, I'll raise my hand. I won't ask you to raise yours. This one's pretty obvious, but the motivation describes the tendency to be governed by the approval of others. Ouch, that one hurts, doesn't it? It's hard not to make choices governed by the approval of others, but that won't win the approval of God who tests the heart. The next motive, which is closely related, is flattery. Paul says, 
we didn't come by words of flattery. We all understand what a flatterer is or someone who butters people up. A flatterer tells you what you want to hear in order to solicit something from you. When you hear the flattery, you should be asking the question, what's the agenda? What do you want? So let's pause for a moment to reflect on this pair. What a dangerous duo this is, people-pleasing and flattery. These two pitfalls combine for a potent, man-centered approach. All of the self-help therapeutic gospels are essentially flattery. All of the seeker-sensitive gospels are essentially flattery. All of the false felt-needs gospels are essentially an attempt at pleasing men. And anytime we try to shape or frame the message of the gospel to make it more acceptable, more palpable for people, we plunge ourselves into one of these two ditches. Right, So there is a temptation uh, to make the gospel a self-help message or a felt-needs message. I feel like I had to get rid of that, get through that before I come over and explain what I'm trying to get at here. Right, There's a temptation to convince the hearer that they need what I'm selling according to what they think and what they perceive. So Jesus now becomes, Pastor Doran warns us about this regularly, Jesus now becomes good news for your marriage or good news for having a well-ordered home and a nice American dream sort of family. Jesus will fix your life. He'll make your life better. And for many, this is admittedly the approach that they think is the right approach, the right way to get people to believe the gospel. I have to figure out what the hearer already wants, like God is a vending machine. So are they lonely? Tell them Jesus is the friend of friends. Are they broken in places of their lives? Jesus is the great physician and he can heal your brokenness. Of course, there's an element of truth in these things, but ultimately we come to Christ as Lord and savior, judge of living and the dead. We come and we submit to the gospel message that all people everywhere should repent and turn from their rebellion against God. And God empowers that message in the hearts and lives of people as he desires. He's the one who creates the effect of change in the heart and the mind and the life. And we don't create the effect of change by shaping the message or tampering the message or making the message more palpable or appeasing in one way or another. Maybe you felt that temptation at one time or another. I remember a girl I used to work at Starbucks named Jen. Uh, We worked together and talked about the Lord here and there every so often. Uh, But she was the kind of gal who shows up every couple of weeks with a new boyfriend You know, you feel like just a desperate, broken person. And I remember thinking, this is so tragic and sad. If she would come into the church and realize that this is a family where you could be welcomed and accepted and belong among the people of God, how that would dramatically change her life. And there's a subtle temptation to try to package the gospel in that way to get you something that you already want but that's a man-centered approach, putting the focus on the hearer rather than a God-centered approach, putting the focus on his message as he's revealed to us in scripture. Of course, there is an element of truth in that, but the impotence for coming to Christ, the motive for coming to Christ isn't, I just want to feel better. The motive for coming to Christ is to be reconciled to God, to have one's sins forgiven, to become a worshiper of the true and living God. Here are the final few knots, and we'll we'll blow through these here. Greed and vainglory. Paul says, we didn't come with a pretext for greed, and we didn't come seeking glory from you or from anyone else. These things are what every false teacher and false prophet are after. They don't care about you. They care about themselves. Every religious huckster and swindler is trying to exploit you. So Paul says, I was much different in my ministry among you Thessalonians. I actually deeply loved and cared about you. I had skin in the game. I made sacrifices for you and I shared my life with you. Follow my example. All right, that is the set of knots. Now we move into the final part, the buts. This is not what faithful gospel ministry, God-honoring evangelism looks like, but... It looks like this, and Paul gives us a powerful list. 
The first, which is kind of hidden in plain sight, we need to back up a little bit in the passage before reading the rest, is persecution. Notice how many times Paul references persecution and opposition in this passage. He talks about suffering persecution and being shamefully treated in Philippi. I think that's in verse two or maybe verse three. And then he talks about proclaiming the gospel of God to them in much hardship or opposition. All right, just think about this. Notice how much skin in the game Paul had. Was evangelism a convenience for Paul? Right, so often for us, evangelism is a convenience. If I have time, if it will benefit me in some way, if I can tack it on to the rest of my life and my responsibilities and duties, then I'll get around to it. Or if I'm feeling guilty, then maybe I'll tell someone about the Lord. I mean, I'm, let me be the first to confess all of those motivations and tendencies in my own life. Think about the life of Paul. He understood that he was called to a Jesus-shaped life, a life which meant following Jesus in the way of the cross, that the master suffered ultimate harm. He was beaten, cast aside, and executed, and were his followers, and should expect the same kind of treatment as we advance his name and his agenda. And actually, if we're not being treated in the same way, then warning signs should be going off in our lives. If we're not suffering any opposition or any persecution or any scorn for Christ, then we should think that that's actually abnormal, that something's wrong. Usually we think something's wrong if we take a hit. We think I must be doing something wrong. So I need to change my course of action. It's so easy for the reflex of self-preservation to govern our lives. But we know we're called to follow Jesus and Jesus went to the cross. And that has, for Paul, that had sides of physical persecution. He, there are lists in the New Testament of the litany of sufferings that he endured, but it also involved taking shame and scorn, which if you proclaim Christ in our day and age, aren't you going to suffer the same? To be verbally abused, to be mocked, and that's the way of Jesus. That actually brings great honor and glory to Jesus. I have a missionary friend to North Africa, and he was um, in town for a few weeks this summer, so we got together to talk. And he's recently been kicked out of the city in which he ministered and planted a church for the last five or six years, and he's had to move on to a different city. And um, we've, we've uh, been in the country where he ministers Morocco together. We've taken sur survey trips together. And there was a time when I was in Morocco with a national believer about 15 years or so, and I was uh, arrested by the police and brought in for questioning because we were trying to proselytize. So uh, my friend Andrew and I, we were talking about um, those kinds of experiences and what you feel and what happens. And we were talking about how sometimes the worst part is the shame and the hazing. That in those scenarios and situations, uh, the authorities want you to feel as guilty as possible. They want you to feel like you've done something heinous and wicked, something that is unthinkable. In their mindset, shaking the faith of a Muslim. For them, that's like the worst crime that you could commit. Um, I had some like gospel literature and gospel tracts in my luggage. And when they were going through those things, there were some copies of the Gospel of John and recordings of the New Testament and copies of the Jesus film in Arabic. And they, they, they had looks on their faces like they were pulling out bricks of cocaine and crystal meth. Like they thought, where in the world did you get this contraband? Like it was the worst thing in the world. And uh, in, the, in the course of conversation, I was with another guy. They were accusing us of being gay together and like trying to get us to fess up and confess to that. Like, are you guys together? Are you a couple? But the shame that they heap up and induce is almost unbearable. I think that's the worst part. It gets into your head and it messes with your mind. It actually makes you start to feel as if you've done something wrong and you deserve to be excoriated and dishonored. Think of the shame that Jesus felt as he bore the cross, dying alone in abject rejection as scum of the earth, the worst kind of criminal death, hanging naked between heaven and earth on a cross, bearing shame as, he, as if he was the worst kind of person. And the New Testament tells us he did that to bear your shame, that your shame and mine, which I deserve for my sin to be cut off from the living God, 
removed from his presence for all of eternity, Jesus took that shame on himself and paid the debt in full. And if you follow him in the gospel and you follow him in advancing his message, you will be shamed as if you're doing something worthy of dishonor. It's, it's par for the course. That's a mark of faithful gospel witness, God-honoring evangelism to take on the shame of Jesus Christ. The next but is this. He says boldness. This quality describes openness and freedom with the message. Paul said, even though we were shamefully, scornfully treated in Philippi, we had boldness in our God to preach you the gospel of Jesus Christ. He wasn't talking about some kind of self-generated, lathered up confidence in himself and his own abilities. He was talking about a confidence rooted in the living God that knew that the word would accomplish its purpose as it was unleashed and that he could speak freely and openly about it because it was true regardless of how it was received. He says his motive was pleasing God. He references this twice. This is the third quality. He, his aim was not to please men and the kind of reception that he would get. It was to please God who sees the motives of the heart, God before whom everyone's heart is laid bare. So let's pause for a moment to just think of these first few qualities of faithful God-honoring evangelism. We should not be surprised when we encounter persecution and opposition for the gospel. In fact, we should be shocked and concerned if it's all smooth sailing. We're called to live a Jesus-shaped life. Though persecuted and opposed, we should feel freedom and confidence to speak the message because it's true. Our commission comes from God Almighty, and our aim is to please him and not anyone else. And that will sustain us through all the rocky, rough waters of life in a sin-cursed world. All right, we're almost there. Let's read the last few verses of the passage, and we'll wrap it up. Look down at verses 7 through 12. Paul says, But we were gentle among you, like a nursing mother taking care of her own children, so being affectionately desirous of you, we were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you'd become very dear to us. For you remember, brothers, our labor and toil. We worked night and day that we might not be a burden to any of you while we proclaim to you the gospel of God. You are witnesses in God also. How holy and righteous and blameless was our conduct toward you believers. For you know how like a father with his children, we exhorted each one of you and encouraged you and charged you to walk in a manner worthy of God who calls you into his own kingdom and glory. Just a few more positive qualities before we wrap up. The next one is innocence. Paul says here, it may be rendered in your translation, we were gentle among you, but I think that word should actually be replaced with infants. We don't have time to get into that, but that's the best attested word in this paragraph. We were like infants among you. And I think the point there is we were innocent. Uh, We all as parents know that babies are not innocent. They have a sin nature, but in this respect, they are not guilty of heinous, overt, wicked acts. I think that's Paul's point as he begins a series of familial metaphors, infants, mothers, fathers. He's saying, we were innocent among you. We weren't troublemakers. Uh, We weren't rabble rousers causing disruption. We were like infants among you. When we suffer for Christ, it shouldn't be because we are obnoxious or rude or um, violating the law in one way or another or troublemakers. Um, That's what this quality points to. He says, we were infants. And later he says, our conduct was holy, righteous, and blameless. He did everything above board. He carried out his ministry with integrity. And that's how we're called to give a verbal witness for the Lord Jesus Christ. Two more qualities. The next one is affectionate. Now, I I hope that we can drill down on this one because this is the one that actually brought me to this passage for this moment, and I've left myself no time. Classic preaching example right there. But we need to understand this quality of affection in evangelism. Look back at verses seven and eight and notice this very vivid word cluster. Listen to these descriptions, these metaphors. Like a nursing mother taking care of her own children. So being affectionately desirous of you, 
We were ready to share with you not only the gospel of God, but our own selves, because you had become very dear to us. Guys, this is rhetorical, don't do this. Raise your hand if you want to make comparison with yourself to a nursing mother with her infants. That's the kind of association that Paul makes here, describing the degree of his tender affection for these people that he knew for three weeks. Just think about the staggering nature of that. He knew these people for such a short-lived time, and he says, we were so eager not only to share with you the gospel of God, but our own selves as well. You had become very dear to us. Let's be honest with ourselves and ask ourselves the question, can I label my evangelism as tender affection, like a nursing mother with her own children, so eager to share with people who need the Lord, not only the gospel of God, but my own self and my life, so eager to show them the true, genuine love of the Lord. Paul describes what that looked like in his own life. That meant that he had to work as a tent maker night and day so that he could proclaim the gospel of God and not become a burden to the Thessalonians, causing them to give him remuneration, pay for his work. He was so eager to share the gospel with them. He said, I don't care if I don't sleep. I'll work night and day if only I can share Christ with you, preach Christ to you. Notice what I mean when I say Paul had skin in the game. He was willing to put everything on the line so that more could hear and more can know. And how often for me, again, is evangelism maybe a convenience or just a passing thought, right? Paul was fully invested in the well-being of these people, seeing them formed in Christ to bring the gospel to them. And then the final, the final quality of faithful God-honoring evangelism is caring. Um, so the last The last two qualities, affection and caring, they're so closely related. uh, You wonder if it bears mentioning splitting them and taking them separately. But the last metaphor he uses is like a father with his own children. So he used the metaphor of the tender affection and love of a mother, a mother with her infant. And then he switches the metaphor to a father with his children. I think we all know there's a difference between a mother's love and a father's love. So if you could imagine that with me for a minute, perhaps mothers are more focused on that tender nurture. Perhaps fathers are more focused on the formation, the protection, and the provision. Maybe fathers can be gruff at times, but underneath there's a deep concern and an enduring love. And Paul said, that's what I felt like towards you. That's how I treated you. Remember the time frame in which he had to minister and to be with these people. One final time, let's pause for our application. This is a question for all of us to ask. How much do I really care for the salvation of the lost? Let's be honest. Take a look within. How much do I actually really care? To the point where I'll be moved to put skin in the game. To make sacrifices, things like Paul says, working night and day while I preach to you the gospel of God, suffering shame, contempt, persecution from the Jews. How many sacrifices am I willing to make? Can my redemptive relationships and my relationships with new converts be described as tender, affectionate, familial, right? Think about this. God is going to add people to inner city Baptist church. He will. The gospel is going to touch down in Allen Park, it's here already, to bear fruit and increase so that people are called out of darkness and into light and added to our body. And these are gonna be people who don't have kids in the school. These are gonna be people who have never been to a sports game in our athletic fields. These are gonna be people who have never been to a class reunion. They have no context and awareness for all of the cultural norms and the microcosm of life that we have going on here. They have absolutely no connection except that now they're in Christ and they're here in our body. What are we gonna do with those kinds of people? Right, Paul says towards people like that, he spent three weeks with these people. He says, I was so desirous of you I was eager to share with you not only the gospel of God, but my own life as well. And if that means I have to work night and day, so be it. Let's go. 
Are we going to have the same heartbeat towards the people that God is calling from the nations and adding to our body at Inner City Baptist Church? So returning to the opening illustration, unlike flattery, bribery, people-pleasing, and man-centeredness, people need to see that our motive for preaching Christ doesn't spring from error, self-centeredness, insincerity. People need to sense that we deeply care for them and love them enough to tell them the truth, not error, deception, or impurity. Ultimately, God sees and knows our hearts, and he will reward perseverance in gospel advance. I think we would all admit evangelism is very frustrating. It is so frustrating. It's like playing golf. It's a very frustrating thing. But God will honor perseverance. And what matters most is God who sees the heart. You know, there are so many times when you want to tell somebody about the Lord and you don't know how to go about it and you don't know if it's the right time and you don't know if exactly you're picking the right way. God sees your heart. He knows your love for him and your love for the lost and he will honor perseverance in making the name of Christ known. So let's make it our aim to please him striving together in God-honoring evangelism. Let's ask for God's help in it. Christ, we cannot thank you enough for calling us out of darkness into your marvelous light, for the staggering reality that we've been transferred into your kingdom and made sons and daughters of the true and the living God. We thank you and we praise you. We know that this is a stewardship We know that we've received the gospel and now we're responsible for the gospel so that more can come and drink from the spring of the water of life and live. God, we beg for your help. We beg for your help to call us into a Jesus-shaped life, to take the message which we've received and to take it forward. And it's in Christ's name that we pray, amen.